Welcome to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. And this week, we are honored, really awesome, like, I'm so honored, actually, to welcome endurance athlete, entrepreneur, um, the creator and star of the awesome endurance racing TV show, Boundless, uh, Simon Donato. And not only did he start and star in that show, um, which you should for sure check out, especially if you're a fan of endurance racing, um, essentially a quick pitch for the show would be it's about these athletes that go around the world and they participate in some of the craziest endurance races out there. Uh, you know, they're not all ultra marathons. You got some adventure racing thrown in there, some mountain bike races. Uh, there was an episode where they're in Greenland and they're cross country skiing, rafting races, swim runs, which we'll get into in the podcast, uh, all sorts of stuff. It's a, it's an excellent show. It's very well made. It's right up my alley. Like <laughs> I'm an endurance sports junkie and I think the thing I like about endurance sports is that for every indiv- every single individual racer that leaves an event will have their own amazing story. And it'll be a story of, you know, suffering and brutal obstacles and, you know, stories of ultimately overcoming and pushing themselves to the limit and just honestly, just stories of adventure. So, uh, and boundless does that man. It, it captures that for sure. And it's, it's an excellent show. Um, but that's just one of many endeavors. Simon, uh, Simon has pursued. Um, he also started this company. I think it's kind of his main passion. Uh, it's this company called adventure science which basically partners field scientists with wilderness athletes um, and basically in an attempt to explore and understand the wildest places in the world, these places that typical scientists wouldn't necessarily be able to to reach on their own. Um, and as, as, a, as a science teacher and an athlete, I just got to say, what a genius idea. I mean, this is just the combination of two things that I'm completely passionate about. So as soon as I learned about adventure science uh, and heard some of the stories from their past expeditions, I for sure instantly knew I wanted to talk to Simon and have him on the podcast because I just selfishly wanted to hear more about his... Uh, I just want to hear more about adventure science and all the all the cool stuff they've done. Um, and on top of adventure science, he uh, <laughs> he has an oatmeal company called Stoked Oats, uh, which are delicious because I I've had a few. Um, and then he has also written a book recently called The Boundless Life: Thirteen Lessons Learned the Hard Way. Um, and if if you're like me and you're you just love endurance sports, wilderness explanation combined with like really good advice, then you should definitely check this book out. Uh, I finished it. I was on an airplane going to Durham, North Carolina this weekend, y'all. Uh, <laughs> and 
uh, to go to a wedding and I finished the book on there. And like, I don't know what it is, but I love reading wilderness adventure books while on an airplane. Because I think when I'm in this tube flying through the sky, like hurtling through the sky at like dangerous speeds, <laughs> I want to distract myself and think about just, I want to like take myself away to the most beautiful places on earth and into the wilderness in that moment. So whenever I'm on an airplane, I always get outside magazine or some sort of wilderness book. Um, and Simon's book was was so awesome and it, it's just great adventure stories so it was a, it was an excellent way to to spend my time during that flight uh and once again that's the boundless life 13 lessons learned the hard way um so yeah i put a link to all of simon's various endeavors uh on the blog that's that's with this podcast so check those out please um and for the rest of our episodes, check out Like a Bigfoot podcast. Uh, you can go to www.likeabigfoot.com or you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, if you guys do find us on iTunes, please be so ever so nice, so very, very nice, and leave us a review and uh, subscribe to us if you if you enjoy stories of athletes and adventure and goal setting and you know just being just being just being a badass like i imagine bigfoot would be <laughs> all right so that's enough of an intro uh i hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as i did and i am so very grateful that simon um was willing to you know come on and share some of these amazing stories so big round of applause for simon donato Yeah, well, thanks for the invite, and yeah, man. let's get rolling here. There's, after, <laughs> I just started your book, so I'm like halfway through it. Um, it's called The Boundless Life, and after reading it, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many ways, so many things we could talk about, and so many things that you do that are, that's interesting to me, um, but I kind of wanted to start with just straight up adventure racing, because... In my opinion, it's one of the best events you could be a part of. Uh, how did how did you get started in it? I got started in adventure racing in 1998 when I got a phone call. This was uh, pre-email for the most part. <laughs> got a phone call from a good buddy of mine named Pete Cameron. And he happened to be working for an adventure racing company uh, called Raid the North at that time run by Dave Zietzma, who was uh, one of Canada's best. And he said, Simon, you got to come up and do this event. Uh, it's in, it's near Ottawa. It's just north of the Ottawa River. It's going to be a crazy, wild, awesome race. It's a team of four. And I said, well, Pete, I, who am I going to get? He goes, I'll pair you with Derek Caveney, another buddy of mine from high school. Uh, Derek was, you know, the smartest kid in class, so we figured we'd give him the navigation duties. <laughs> and then he he found two other athletes in Ottawa. And uh, that's how we formed our team. So in in the summer of 2000, or sorry, summer of 1998, uh, I headed up 
to uh, Fort Coulange, Quebec, and participated in the first Raid the North race, which was 36 hours. And I think it took us, you know, like 35 hours and 40 minutes or so <laughs> to make it across. We were the last place team of those who nice. uh, continued to race. And uh, yeah, it just uh, made me fall in love with the adventure of it all. Yeah. The thing that made me laugh when I was reading your book, um, because I had the exact same, I've only done two adventure races at this point. But our first one, I had the exact same experience of not un- fully understanding how to pack your bag and then looking like a like a big jerk. <laughs> like with we had a bag like my bag was one of the like giant backpacking backpacks. And and yeah, so reading your book, you mentioned like packing like a full on blanket and, you know, um, Oh yeah, I had a wool blanket as my emergency <laughs> blanket. I I'd never seen those little tin foil blankets before. Uh, yeah, the shovel for human waste. Everybody brought a little trowel or a little, you know, sh- sh- uh, spoon from home, and I brought one of those military folding shovels. So, yeah, I mean, you just you don't know until you dive in it, and certainly at that point. We didn't have all the resources that are available now with uh, with the internet. So I mean, I, I literally had no place to go other than ask uh, Pete and maybe a few other of the adventurers that I knew, and I didn't know many at that time uh, what they were thinking. Yeah. So did you guys? I mean, the thing with adventure racing is there's also a lot of um, uh, there's just a lot of different aspects that if you haven't done it before, it's kind of difficult to figure out. So were you guys like? good at the orienteering part um did you mesh well as a group yeah i mean you just hit on two key aspects i don't what races have you done um none of them big so they're both 12 hours so i did one um in boone iowa (laughs) okay what was that one called the wilderness mecca of boone uh it was called the boone crusher and i think we did it the second year um and that was our first one, and literally everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Uh, we right when we got to the bike section, my friends, my friend had the option of borrowing like a super sweet mountain bike, or this guy's like crappy mountain bike, and he's like, "Well, I'll take the crappy one, you know. I don't want to use his nice one." And of course, like literally fifty yards into the biking section, his chain just snapped in half. Um, and so we spent like a good hour, you know, problem solving, uh, and then, you know, it's, it's good though. You got to get that stuff out of the way. You learn, you learn best from, uh, facing those challenges and then figuring them out. Yeah, exactly. And then the second one went a little smoother. It was in, uh, Shenandoah, like the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Um, and it was the Rev three, uh, adventure race. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Hadn't heard of the Boone Crusher. But, yeah. I mean, you'd ask about Nav and oh, what was the other part? Uh, just like team dynamics. Right. So, I mean, navigation is is a critical element of adventure racing. That's what makes it. That's what makes the adventure, you know, having to figure out how to get from A to B to C to D. And... You know, uh, the other part of it is knowing your team's strengths and weaknesses. Um, so a good navigator will play to that. If you say you're faced with a couple choices, uh, do you bushwhack? Do you? 
take a road which might be longer and run it or you know i mean do you have a team of good runners well maybe it makes more sense to go around so you know throughout my adventure racing career we would always oscillate um in our decision-making process based on the team that we had and typically at least at that point in my life i was on teams where we were excellent cyclists so um, we would look for ways to really speed up the cycling leg and uh, typically would bushwhack straight lines. But, yeah, I mean, where do you begin with navigation bobbles and uh, overshooting things, undershooting things, popping into the right area and second-guessing because the race director uh, put the checkpoint or the TA in the wrong place? I mean, I've, I've seen it. I've seen almost every situation you can imagine in a navigational uh, setting. And, you know, some days you get lucky, uh, some days you don't. I was just talking about this one experience I had um, probably back in 2001, just before I did Eco Challenge. So that, that year was a good one, uh, a lot of success, and it all just kind of came together. And I remember one race, we could just do no wrong. We were pushing extremely hard. We had been in the lead for a long time. This was a 36-hour race in uh, Ontario, uh, Adventure Race in Canada at that point. And I had somehow left a critical map behind. So I had no map for this upcoming section, but I knew the direction we needed to be, and we found a trail. We somehow stumbled onto this trail uh, through bushwhacking, and, you know, we started trotting down the trail. And, okay, guys, let's say we need to go northeast. Well, this is going more or less northeast, so let's follow it. We, I know we have a few kilometers on this. Anyways, it took us exactly where we needed to go. We continued the race. We ended up winning. And it wasn't until afterwards when I was looking at the maps that uh, uh, we were given and I saw the one that I had missed, the race director had actually said, go to this trail, hit this trail, run it along, and it'll take you to the next spot. So <laughs> we would have had that. <laughs> Uh, uh, information, but you know, sometimes you just get lucky and yeah. sometimes you're very unlucky and, you know, you could have missed it by 10 meters, maybe never saw it and, uh, just trudged through the bush for an extra hour or two. So <laughs> yeah, I've been there on the, uh, navigation side for sure. And then in, on the team dynamic side, I've been really fortunate. Most of my teammates, have meshed well with me and you know we all bring our little uh quirks and idiosyncrasies to the table and in many cases that's what makes a great team everybody is is a little bit different but um we all we all have the ability to lift the group at any given moment or we all add something to make the group uh the team a whole i have had some experiences though where the wheels have fallen off and it's yeah. just been a disaster <laughs> oh yeah those, those are never fun, so you, know, you, you try and avoid those ones. Um, but my first adventure race, we got lucky. Uh, Derek and I went way back. Uh, we knew each other for many years, so he and I were great. And Tom and Heather were our additions from Ottawa. And, you know, even though we didn't know them, we kind of all committed to uh, the same goal, which was surviving it and figuring it out and getting to the end. And even though we all struggled, uh, we did it. I can't say I ever spoke to them again afterwards, but uh, <laughs> yeah. the race, that's for sure. Yeah, man. Did you, so do you sleep during those like a 36 hour one or is that like a short enough amount of time that you're able to stay awake the whole time? That's, that's a good question. And it really depends on how the race is playing out. Typically we go into a race like that with the mentality that you're not going to sleep if things are going well. If, 
you make a few mistakes out there, things start to slow down, maybe the weather turns quite sour. Uh, it might be worth taking a half hour nap. It also depends where you are in the rankings. I mean, if you're if you're in the lead or in the hunt, uh, the adrenaline and, and the pressure helps keep you awake and force you along. If you're mid-pack or a little further back than where you'd hope to be, um, I, I don't think sleeping is necessarily a bad option at that point because if you're further back than where you expect to be you're there most likely because you've made some errors yeah and pushing on when you're sleep deprived just isn't uh, a great thing so i mean most people who don't adventure race will say okay 24 hour or 36 hour race you start at eight in the morning or five in the morning or whatever and you go until you know the same time the following day or midday the following day yeah that's one night that you can get through well what they don't realize is it's usually about three nights of sleep deprivation, if not more, because we're all working our real jobs during the week. Let's say the race starts Saturday morning. So uh, maybe Wednesday or Thursday, you've got to leave to get to the race site. And if you're me, you haven't started packing until the day before you leave. So Obviously. that <laughs> yeah, might keep you up late at night. I always envy those people. Oh yeah. You know, I packed the weekend before like, wow, you are good. That's crazy. <laughs> I, I can't, I couldn't imagine doing that. Cause I would like unpack my bag and then like double check and then repack and then triple check. It would just, it would just seemingly be a disaster for me. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's one of the things if you pack, not necessarily last minute, but yeah, sorting gear, packing gear, uh, second guessing everything is, uh, is never any fun, but, um, yeah, so you, you lose for me, at least you lose sleep the night before, uh, you leave cause you're typically up packing. And then, uh, if it's a day before the race, there's either a long drive or a long flight to get there. You get to the race, you register in the evening or afternoon and then you're up late organizing gear once you know what the race course is going to look like. So, you know, that night you're typically only getting a few hours of sleep, if even that. Yeah. And that, you know, you're you're going to the start wherever that may be. Typically it's an early morning start. And so you're already a few days of uh, sleep deprivation going into these things. So one night is one, – one night we can all survive. Uh, it, it just depends on how difficult it is to get to the start line that really affects sleep in these races. Yeah, man. What? Uh, how do you come up with a good adventure racing name? Because team name? Yeah, team name. Our team name sucked, man. It, we spent like <laughs> I remember sitting around my house when we signed up for like two hours trying to come up with a like. We're like, what could be like a badass team name? And yeah, we settled on yes, happy because it was the opposite of nomad, and we thought we were so smart. And we're, and we're like, this is the worst team name maybe of all time. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess the easy thing to do is, is race for a while, get good, and then get a sponsor. And okay. uh, then there you your, go. Team name, your team name problems are solved. But uh, <laughs> we started out as Pathfinders. Okay. And That's a good one. Yeah, it was, it was good. Um, picking a team name is difficult. I, <laughs> I wish I had some advice there, but... <laughs> I don't know. Usually it's one of those eureka moments. So yes. I would say picking a team name, don't force it. Don't obsess over it. Just give yourself a little bit of time to bounce some some names around and settle. I mean, with Stoked Oats, our oatmeal company, uh, when Brad and I started batting names about back in 2010, I mean, we, we probably had a list of 20 or 30 names by the time we'd finished brainstorming. And we just sat on that for a long time. 
uh, although we did have favorites and, you know, we kind of waited to see if anything else popped up and, you know, after a while it's like, yeah, it's definitely going to be stoked out. So that's the name for us. So yeah, just, you know, go with uh, what, what kind of represents you. (laughs) Well, you know, yes, happy is it, then go with it. It'll (laughs) become cool if you start winning. It was better than our other choice, which was a, a bottom, which was the opposite of ZZ top. And we're like, we're set with us. This is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, man. I was going to say, it's funny, like what little bumps in the road can stop you from actually pursuing something, you know, like coming up with a name for your oatmeal company, you know, that actually could stop some people because they get so into that decision. Like, oh, we're going to make the wrong decision here we might as well just not do it, you know? And like at a certain point, you just got to, you just got to go for it. Couldn't agree more. Um, with adventure racing is really uh, a great sport to draw parallels between our, our daily lives. So for example, let's get back to navigation. If you have to go from A to B, unless there's a trail that you have to take, typically there's a few options to get there. So, yeah, there may be a best option, but you may miss it, and you may get there another way. The important thing is that you just put your head down, you persevere, and you get there, and you can course correct along the way once you figure that uh, maybe we've drifted too far off. Let's get back to the main main track or you know recalibrate. And I think while in life and business – some decisions are certainly better than others, and the name Stoked Oats has certainly served us well. I mean, it's cool, it's edgy, it really represents the kind of guys we are. I think that the spirit uh, of, of Brad, Sean, and I, the, the desire to succeed, the quality of the product, almost regardless of what name we had, we still would have made it our own and, and pushed it to the place that it is now. Um, you know, so that the name certainly helps, but it isn't what defines the company. And I do agree with you getting stalled out by your desire to be perfect on your first attempt, uh, is, is a mistake that I think a lot of people tend to make because nobody wants to feel like they make a mistake, but in not doing anything, that's a mistake in and of itself, in my opinion. So, Yeah, I think you just have to sometimes throw the sails up and just catch the wind and and go for it. Is that something that – was that a skill that you didn't have until you started doing these endurance challenges? That's a good question. Uh, You're testing my my memory (laughs) banks now. That's a good point because now it just seems probably like a natural natural thing to just be okay with maybe the process or the cycle of failure, um, in learning, you know, but has that always been the case with you? I, I honestly, I'm I'm trying to dig up some situation. I mean, I, I didn't get my driver's license the first time I went for it. So I don't know, I was 16, 17 years old, went out, took the test and uh, made a mistake, didn't get the license. You know, it's embarrassing back then. Uh, at that time in my life, I was passing tests. I was getting good grades. I was making most of the sports teams that I tried for. And life was pretty good and pretty easy. Uh, so having those those kind of moments, they, they force you to uh, deal with things going awry from what your life plan is. But I'd say 
that it was really my immersion in sport that um, that taught me these lessons and made it an, a natural part of how I think now. Uh, because if you think about it, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours to, you know, become an expert in something. And there's lots of other authors who, you know, espouse the same kind of theories and uh, quote the research and literature. If you look at these big life events, your driver's license, going out to make a team, you know, when you're a kid, uh, when you get older, it might be relationship stuff or work things. Typically, you're not hit on the head that often. When you're racing, <laughs> Uh, especially in a venture race, being out there for 36 hours, how many navigational decisions do you have to make? Uh, how many uh, team decisions do you have to make? Somebody's slowing down. Do you offer to take their bag? Or you're starting to slow down. When do you say, hey, guys, I need help? Uh, you're, you're training, your daily training. How hard do you go? When do you take your breaks? I mean, these are things that continually force you to analyze what you're doing and Am I doing whatever it is in the most optimum and efficient way? And I, I, I think that by living that and having to make those decisions almost on a daily or when you're racing, you know, minute by minute basis to some degree, it helps you deal with the bigger things that happen in life less frequently. Yeah, like you, you're almost intentionally putting yourself in a situation where you're going to have these obstacles to overcome and it's kind of practice or training for real life. Um, exactly. The so many adventure racers, uh, back when I was racing a lot, uh, I remember Isaac Wilson, he was a American racer and he was the first one I heard say it, but certainly not the last. He goes, adventure racing is like compressing life into a 36 hour or one week or whatever period yeah. the highs and lows that you have in a race uh, even between checkpoints you know really mirror the highs and lows that you have in a, in your life but they're just it's it's so compressed yeah definitely i was so i mentioned a couple episodes ago there's a a guy who does like ultra running documentaries named billy yang i don't know if you've ever seen any of his stuff but he did a film and it had the perfect name because it was called life in a day I was like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Um, my One of the quotes from the book, and I think it's in the first chapter, and I was like, I was going to ask you if this is kind of like the theme of the book, uh, but it's people are afraid of success, but more specifically, they are afraid of the effort required to gain, obtain success. Um, yeah, the fear of success, uh mentality is certainly a central theme for me in life and the book and i tried to convey it through the book but um that was uh that was a massive learning for me in that yeah i wasn't really afraid of failure i mean i didn't want to fail yeah uh, but it was more that i was afraid of committing to do what it took to be successful and i see it i mean it, it's everywhere so many of and especially with things moving so rapidly with technology now um the the fear of commitment uh it really translates to me as a, as a fear of success and going all in yeah definitely i mean all the material is out there for people to be successful and it's like mm -hmm. really easily obtainable for you to understand or even hear stories from you know like people like you who have been successful in the past um 
or are successful now, you, you have access to all this information, but you know, you actually have to go out and, and do it, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, exactly. You have to make that decision and that's really what it comes down to. You make a decision and you commit and you hold yourself accountable because we can't control anybody else. Um, I mean, as a parent, you realize you can't control yeah. your kids oh, I realize what they want to do on the daily. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're only in charge of yourself and, you know, do you make that commitment to honor what, uh, what your goal is? And if you don't commit to that, you'll never get there. If you do, you're going to have a pretty darn good chance of, of reaching some level of success in terms of whatever goal you've set. So, um, it, that, that was really a eureka moment for me when I realized that, you know, I wasn't afraid of failure, which is what you kind of hear growing up. I never heard the term fear of success, but yeah. that's exactly what it was. I was, I was really afraid of putting in the effort required to succeed. And, uh, you know, I think I tell the story around just a, a simple running race. I mean, it wasn't the biggest ultra I'd ever done. It wasn't the eco challenge. It was a 32 kilometer trail race in Southwestern Ontario called the Iroquois trail test. Something, it was on my bucket list. All my buddies had done it and they'd been talking about how great it was for years. And, race starts, a bunch of us go off the front. One guy just like sprints ahead and you know, he was pretty much untouchable. But I started running with a, with a guy named Mike who had just whooped me, uh, that Thanksgiving prior. And I think this race was in June, July, August, somewhere in there It was a summer race. And I was thinking to myself, Oh man, I mean, this guy, he was so much faster than me on a shorter course. Uh, now that I'm running step for step, but behind him, there's no way I should pass him, but he, he slowed down through this rock garden and then I knew I could run it faster. And, you know, at that moment without really realizing it, it was just like, all right, you're going to go for this. You can, you can run faster. You will run faster. And now you just, you have to put in the effort to get there instead of, um, play it safe, run behind them and talk yourself out of being successful on the day. And yeah, that's what happened. And it was just, um, a few weeks after that, I really put all that together when I was thinking about a talk that I had to give. So yeah, it was, it was a really great moment, uh, for me at least. Yeah, man. Especially like during a race when you, like you said, pass somebody or you take the lead and you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> like, am I going to be brave enough to actually finish this thing? Like full effort? Because you know, if you're, if you're not necessarily in the lead, you can always have the excuse of like, well, you know, it wasn't my day or, or, you know, I, that guy would, would have been impossible to catch up to, but, but yeah, it's a, it's a weird experience for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the excuses are, I mean, there, there's no shortage of them that you can pull from any race. And I think the, the one thing I really learned through boundless because boundless took took us both turbo and i and you know we were running pretty well when boundless started i was i would have characterized myself at that point in 2012 as a runner as opposed to an adventure racer or a cyclist really even though i still did that stuff yeah um but boundless made us more generalists i became a slower runner because of boundless i became a slower cyclist because of boundless because suddenly you're training for many many different sports the travel uh, schedule is just insane your recovery is minimal i mean you really take a beating on the road and 
you just try and survive it. So, you know, you, you, you have to adapt and accept whatever your body's willing to give you on the day. So I realized quickly that, you know, I wasn't going to reach the podium in every race. Occasionally I was going to have a good race, but what I could control was that I was going to give him my best every race. And, you know, sometimes that meant I was going to walk. And if, if my best was walking, yeah, I was happy with that, but yeah. I wasn't happy if I crossed the finish line knowing that I didn't give it my best and didn't put everything that I could into the effort. And, you know, for me, that's, that's now my definition of success. And some days you end up on the podium if everything goes well and you put in uh, your training and all of that. And some days you don't, but I've had, I mean, Kenya in season one was a terrible, terrible race for me. I went there with a little bit of a knee injury. I had just won the Iceland, um, seven day race, uh, three or four weeks prior. Was that the, 250. the fire and ice or something? Yeah, it was the fire and ice race. So okay. it was the first year they ran it. It's a big race now, but then it was just small. But oh, one second. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Sesame she, Street's over. Yeah, exactly. She wants a two-two. Hey, buddy. Oh, who doesn't? Hey, buddy. Uh, uh, sorry, man. <laughs> it's all right. When you're when you're uh, three-year-old daughter asks in the cutest way that she wants a two-two. You got to go. Hey, I get it. Yeah, man. I get it. She's she's very complicated. Like, we'll go hiking. Like, last night we went hiking, and she just, all she wants to do is play in the mud. But then as soon as we get home, she wants to put her tutu on. So, you know. (laughs) She's uh, of two minds, I guess, on it all. Yeah. Uh, So where were we here? Well, so I, I think that was a point in the book where you talked about redefining what success looks like um, when you're in the middle of the race. In Kenya. Yeah, exactly. So I guess the Icelandic race went very well and, you know, I was running well, but I finished with some knee pain and I hadn't really experienced that before. Came home, wasn't able to run and went off to Kenya to do the 75 K race. Now 50 miler had been my sweet spot up until that point. I had won a few in the States and, you know, I was feeling pretty fast over that distance, but the race just didn't go the way I wanted by about 50 kilometers in. I mean, it was already slowing down. The heat was getting to me, but my knees started hurting. And I started walking, well, walk running. And I bumped into uh, Josh and Jordan on the, uh, on the on their ATVs. Jordan was filming. Josh uh, is the director. And I started chatting with them about what was going on. And Josh was the first one to bring it up. I hadn't really thought about it. He said, well, you know, did you want to pull out? And I said, well, give me a few minutes. And then I decided I was going to do that. You know, I thought, oh, well, feeling sorry for yourself and your knees sore and you got another race in five or six days and then a race a week after and then another 250K a month later. So, you know, maybe you should just bow out and uh, let your body recover. So I tell them I'm going to do that. But when I got to the aid station where we had agreed that I'd pull out, I just I started wrestling with it a little bit more. And I just decided that I couldn't do it. So, yeah, that was that point in the race and in life where you just make the decision. Are you going to give up and walk away just because it's you know inconvenient and you're not getting your way? Or are you just going to suck it up and get it done? And, you know, this this is where I think it really all came together for me about 
just do your best on the day, whatever that is. So, you know, I literally power walked, I don't know, the remaining 20 or so kilometers with a little bit of running interspersed in there, even though it felt like somebody was driving a nail into the front of my kneecap um, to just get it done. And because of that, my, my favorite, one of my favorite races on the season is Kenya, even though my performance was terrible uh, by my standards it's not Iceland. I mean, I love the Icelandic experience, but winning, you know, it was nice, but it wasn't as character building as Kenya was. And I, I now crave those experiences. Sure. I don't want to get injured in a race and have to deal with those things, but I really have come to appreciate the struggle that, uh, we face in these races and overcoming that. And, you know, that, that's what, gives them the richness for me that keeps me coming back. If it was simply chasing podiums, you know, that's just, it's a flash in the pan. It's it's a moment standing up, waving to a few people. I mean, how many of these races do people even stand around to watch who's on the podium? There's like 20, 20 people at the end. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, I, I race to be the best I can be on the day and sometimes it works out and you hit the podium and sometimes it doesn't. But if you do your best, you never have anything to be uh, ashamed of or really to want for. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess there was, there was one thing I wanted to, well, I guess, how did you guys come up with the boundless idea? The idea for that TV show, because it's, it's fantastic, first of all, and I'm super bummed because I'm in the Thanks. States and I can only find season three, but <laughs> uh, yeah, Esquire had season one and two, but, but boundless came about through my company, adventure science. So adventure science yeah. is something that I created in 2008 and it's an international organization where I pair athletes with uh, field based scientists. So I take adventure athletes like us, pair them with field researchers like paleontologists, archaeologists, uh, uh, climatologists, whomever, people who work outside and need to collect data in the outdoors. And I bring them together in the same setting. And we do very focused uh, projects where the athletes are the eyes and ears for the researchers in the field. And the researchers train and teach and educate these athletes on how to be good scientific observers and collect the data they need. So, man, that's so as I'm a I'm a middle school science teacher most years. And man, that's so cool. <laughs> like it just combines two of my favorite things, science and being an athlete and being like a outdoors athlete, too. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how it, it I, I came up with the idea. I mean, it wasn't I wasn't looking for anything in particular. It was just through my um, through my Ph.D. Well, starting with my master's, actually, we, we had made a major um, uh, fossil find, uh, found something that was like a giant sea scorpion and it had never been it was new. Nobody had ever seen one of these before, and it was on the edge of the road. So geology is typically done at road cuts. People blast through rock to put a road through, and all of a sudden you expose a lot of new rock, and people go in there and find fossils. And I started thinking, well, I'm a fit guy, and I love exploring. What happens if I were just to follow this geologic trend off the road? Could I find more of these things, better preserved uh, versions of this fossil? And that's where I started thinking about it. And then as my Ph.D. developed, I started applying um, these thoughts that I uh, tumbling around in my head to do my project, and I was walking large distances in the Middle East to collect data, whereas typically that would be done with vehicles, but the vehicles had limitations. So my fitness allowed me to take my project 
miles beyond where it would have gone otherwise. So I was working in a lagoon at the time. Lagoon was intertidal. So some parts of the day, the water is flooding the lagoon. Other parts, you know, it's almost dry, but dry is in quotations because if you drive a truck out there, oh, it's yeah. like quicksand. You get so stuck. you park it. Yeah, you'll get stuck. So because of that, you can only bring the truck to the edge of the lagoon. Then, you know, with all the big equipment we had and everything else, you can only really sample the, the sand and sediment within, you know, call it 100, 200 yards from the edge of the lagoon. And the lagoon was huge. By walking it, so having the fitness and endurance ability to move through this lagoon through all phases of the tide, uh, I was able to see so much more and with my supervisor do so much more. And that's what really galvanized it for me. And then once I finished my PhD, I created Adventure Science and uh, created the company around that to do exactly what I was doing. So, so cool. since then, we've we've uh, had at least one to two projects a year. We've traveled around the world. We've done a whole bunch in the United States. And we use the this uh, methodology for everything from um, scientific goals, you know, paleontologic. We found dinosaur tracks. We found numerous archaeologic sites to humanitarian side of things. We've found missing airplanes. Uh, I took a team out to look for uh, Caballo Blanco, Micah True, and wow. spent the night the night with his body um, as part of the search and rescue effort in New Mexico when he went missing in 2012. So anyways, your question uh, was, how did Boundless start? Well, Boundless started because of adventure science. I started uh, ultra running in 2010 and took on the Canadian death race at that point, which was a 125-kilometer run. In with the, a great uh, name, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was one of the first big ultras in canada and it goes through the rocky mountains uh so it's it's a really great race and it's just one of those bucket races in canada but not having run ultras before it was really like 1998 for me when i started adventure racing i couldn't find any resources on it i didn't know what to eat or or use or wear for an ultra run i knew what to do for an adventure race but this wasn't an adventure race yeah so i went into it kind of blind and i thought well I should hire a documentary crew to come and follow this and make a documentary. One, because it'll be interesting, and two, to help educate other people who follow uh, this path. So that's what I did. And uh, one of my good buddies, Josh Eady, was living in Toronto at the time as a, and working as a television editor. He and I worked together to edit this project, and he really fell in love with the challenge that ultra running was. And... We started chatting about what it would look like uh, as a television program, and you know, we we created a little uh, TV pitch. Uh, I wrote it up. He created the uh, the little video pitch, and as luck would have it, we managed to sell it within a week or two. That's so, so cool. That's that's extremely rare. Since <laughs> then, uh, we've never seen that kind of luck. But uh, yeah, we were we were right place, right time, right product. But it was also you know, years in the making, if you will. It was my career as an adventure racer. It was my life as an adventure scientist and all the work I'd put in there. Uh, it was my life as a geologist. You know, if, if I wasn't working for um, a big oil company at the time, I wouldn't have been able to fund this project. So, you know, I had made decisions in my life that, you know, well, if, I, if I'm able to get a job that pays me well, then I can afford to do more of these adventures and hopefully grow that into something which is ultimately what led me to, to Boundless and then where I am today. Yeah. Well, and I love, I love the idea of just unexpected 
you know, like you, you started adventure science and at first you probably didn't think this was going to lead to a TV show. I can't imagine. <laughs> so no, it, w- it would have been a pipe dream wish at that point. If yeah. you ask me, I certainly didn't see a path forward. You're right about that. Yeah. So, so speaking of the show, there's, I mean, I, I really enjoyed every episode, um, that I saw the, Attilo, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the swim run, I thought that was mm-hmm. such a unique event. Like it just sounds so much fun. You're basically swimming between twenty some islands and then getting on the island, running across, jumping back in the water. It just sounded. It just seems like a really interesting event. Um, is there? I mean, is there any more of these type of events in the world, or is that the only one? Oh my God! It is. It's growing. Like uh, it's spreading like wildfire, I guess. So the uh, Attila race was on our list to do for a very, very long time. But because of the way Boundless works, you, you can't always get the races you want. Yeah. So we were fortunate to finally get there. And uh, personally, I do not like swimming. I don't like swim training. I don't want to be in a pool. I'd rather be running or yeah. cycling or something like that. So. I might have swam two or three times before I went to this race and <laughs> it's got 65 K of running and 10 K of swimming. And I think, yeah, you cross between about 25 islands or so, but what made it awesome was the adventure of it all. It really felt like an adventure race without, you know, the hassle of bikes and boats and all of that yeah. stuff. And, you know, interestingly enough, it's, it's run by two guys that I used to race against, and I competed against the Eco Challenge uh, in 2001 in New Zealand. So, you know, it's an adventurer's sport. And that year, I remember uh, Mikko was telling us that he's uh, one of the race directors. They had grown from, I think, the previous year had 10 or 20 races. That year, they had 60 races. This was in 2015. I believe. Yeah. 2015. Yeah. This year, there are 650 <gasps> swim run races around the world. Most are in Europe. Okay. That's uh, the Attilo is still, Attilo is still the world championship, but uh, there's a whole bunch in uh, New Zealand and Australia. There's a handful in North America now. I'm running one. I fell in love with it. Oh yeah. So I've got the, yeah, I've got the amphibious challenge. So you know, you just go amphibiouschallenge.com and. I'm running this race uh, uh, near where I live in Quebec, just uh, an hour and a half outside of Ottawa. Wow. So uh, we're a qualifier for the world championships. I ran the first one last year, and there's there's one in North Carolina. There's one. Where's the one uh, in North Carolina? Maine. I used to live there, so it's uh, uh, it's, uh, it's near Mount Airy. Oh, okay. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So north. Northwest uh, yeah. North Carolina, beautiful area. Great guys uh, run it. Uh, yeah, so I mean that one's in November, I believe. There's one in August or late July in Maine. Uh, mine's in September, September 9th. So you know they're out there, and it's it's just fun. Yeah. And you know I I was intimidated by the distances that I that I thought I'd have to swim. I mean 10k is a lot of swimming. I didn't even ever want to do an Ironman because I thought, well, who wants to swim for a couple miles? But you know, you go out and swim a mile across uh, between two islands. It's like there's there's a destination, and it's it's an interesting one. I wanted to see what those islands were like. I wanted to run across it, whether it was following flagging through the forest or a single track trail or a gravel road. I mean, it really was the adventure. So with my race, 
you know, the, the athletes are running on gravel roads, paved roads, trail, and then swimming between a series of island and the river. In North Carolina, um, there's river swimming, there's there's mountain climbing, basically. <laughs> I mean, so you get that adventure in yeah. there, and it's not it's not as uh, scripted as a triathlon. So I think that's why a lot of people are gravitating to it. So you just pay attention online and, okay. and to the sports media over the next year or two, and you know, by, by this time next year, you'll probably see about 15 to 20 swim runs, uh, in North America. And within two years, I bet there's going to be 50. So it's, it's a new and growing sport. Uh, it's, it's an exciting way to test your fitness. And to be honest, OCR is starting to see a little bit of a decline now. And I think it's just played out just like any sport. I mean, swim runs going to spike, and then it's going to decline. Yeah. Uh, adventure racing spiked and declines. Ultras is, yeah. is going to do the same. People try something for a while. They get a certain level of proficiency, and then they want that next challenge. That's just human nature. So I think OCR is, is, is going to spit out athletes into this whole swim run um, world. Yeah, definitely, man. Can we kind of wrap up? I, I did want to hear about the eco challenge a bit because I think, I think that was the big exposure of adventure racing uh kind of to the world because i remember like every year when i was a kid on nbc they would show like an eco challenge documentary and (laughs) it uh it always fascinated me because i'm like this is the craziest event that i've ever seen you know because up until that point it was all like basketball games and football and baseball you know and this is like a multi-day thing this dude's pulling a leech out of his eyeball. I like specifically remember that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a hard mental image to forget. Yeah. I love Borneo. Yes. Yeah. So, so well, you, you, this was kind of the pinnacle for your adventure racing. You guys qualified, and then you, you actually went and did the Eco Challenge. Yes. Uh, I mean, Eco Challenge was the Olympics of the sport back then. Mark Burnett. Uh, learned about adventure racing through something called the Raid Galois, which was a French-organized expedition race and the predecessor of Eco Challenge. But then he took it to the next level and made it a, a television spectacle. He did a great job of it and really put the sport of adventure racing into people's lives. So, you know, kudos to him for yeah. doing that. That's the Survivor dude, right? He's since created Survivor, yes. yeah. I, and, I learned that from your book, and I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, most people wouldn't put the, put those two together. But adventure racing was his first love and really what, what got his start in, um, in television. But, yeah, it was the Olympics. It brought out the best teams in the world. It was very difficult to, uh, to get into. Uh, you either had to have a very, very wealthy sponsor who could buy a spot there or – you had to be literally one of you know the top three, top five best teams in the world. Being good wasn't good enough back then. So wow. I was fortunate. I joined a team that uh, already had a place in the race and I uh, was able to contribute to, to their efforts. So that worked out well for me. But it, it was a spectacular experience. It just made me fall in love with the sport even more. And it was uh, really a massive blow to the sport and a shame that uh, eco challenge uh, stopped running because you know 2002 was the last eco and the sport tailed off quickly after that and yeah. it, it still exists but not nearly at uh, the same profile it used to be when eco was running yeah definitely i guess um one thing i did want to ask you about that uh i 
you know, I, I love doing the adventure racing, but they're very hard to kind of find online. Um, is there any website you can go to with like a list of all of them? Like, like kind of compare compared to ultra sign up. Yeah. Ultra sign up is uh, fantastic. It's really good. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, we've got races on there. Uh, it's a very easy one-stop shop. Um, in terms of a, a collective for adventure racing, Sleep Monsters uh, has has been the site for years. Okay. And I mean, I haven't been there in a while, so that's a good place to find out about it. There's the Adventure Racing World Series now, which uh, if you were to Google that, you'd find the races that are a part of it. Okay. But um, I, I can't think of any others offhand. Um, I know there is at least one other, and there's the. Um, USARA, United States Adventure Racing Association, which will likely have a list of uh, at least American races there. So okay. there's a few resources out there, but cool. yeah, they're they're a little bit tougher to find. But Sleep Monsters had always been a very good one for me. Nice, man. I don't think they let a team with as lame of a name as Yes Happy into their events, but uh, we'll, we'll try. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Simon. See what you can do. Yeah, man. Well, thank you, man. This was really awesome. Uh, you know, keep, keep up all of your endeavors. You're, you definitely seem like, uh, a guy with a lot of plates spinning all at once, which is, which is pretty inspiring to see. Well, thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate being on, uh, on your podcast and yeah, stay tuned in with adventure science. Maybe there'll be a chance for us to work together at some point in the future and get you out on one of the projects. That'd be great, man. I would, yeah, I would love that. I, it would impress middle school students. So, <laughs> which is hard to do. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, inspire them. You know, that's, that's the thing you want to get more, more kids out and exploring the wilderness and the wild places so that they can stand up for them when they get older and when uh, they need to be defended. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thanks Simon. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you at some point in the future. All right. Take care, Chris. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Big gigantic. Thanks to Simon for stopping by and, uh, chatting with us on the podcast today. And just kind of one thing to add on to what he said at the end there. Um, I don't say this word that often on the podcast. But how about a big f- yeah for getting our children and our kids out into w- the wilderness, into nature, and into these wild places? Because like you said, man, there's going to come a time in the future where certain wild areas are going to be threatened to be sold off the amount of public lands that we have in the united states and really in north america in general is incredible um it's something that's it's a rarity it's not found all the way across the world and it's something that i know i haven't really i hadn't really thought of while i was growing up it was just something i kind of took for granted that there were these places where I could go out into the forest and kind of explore around. And we had these state parks and we had these national parks and, and national forests and areas that our County may have, have been involved with, uh, putting aside just specifically for wilderness and outdoor activity. I mean, You, right now, if you're living in the United States, and I think Canada's pretty similar in this way, 
you own all of this public land. It's public land. It's something that you own. You could be sitting right now in your one-bedroom apartment in the middle of Manhattan, and yet you own all of this land across the United States. You have all of these places that are available right now for you to go out and enjoy. And there are certain groups out there who are looking to privatize these lands and basically purchase them for various reasons. But the fact is you're going to lose, you would lose some of that land that you own. And it's a big issue. It's a big issue just for, you know, like I'm a huge proponent of going out into wilderness to regain your mental sanity, (laughs) especially in the day and age of electronics and distractions and the internet and all those things like we all fall you know fall under the spell of uh you can go out into these lands and you can just have time away from that which is great but public lands are also incredibly important for wildlife and uh conservation and preservation of of habitats i mean most species that are threatened or endangered um they are that way because they of habitat loss that's the main reason animal species have be become threatened if if they have so so losing all of this public land and all this wilderness would be a, incredibly harmful to these species and let me tell you guys, it gets so, uh, when you talk about conservation and um, land management, animal management, it gets almost impossibly complicated. Um, it, it, a good resource and something I listened to recently that will just kind of show you <laughs> how unbelievably just intricate this topic gets Uh would be the episode of the Meat Eater podcast, which Stephen Ranella, which is just excellent. Um, but it's episode number 61. I listened to it yesterday where he talks with David Allen of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And they can do like a, a billion time better job than me explaining this stuff. But <laughs> But seriously, give it a listen and you will realize that although animal management is very complicated it kind of all depends on the backbone of the fact that we have these areas um these wild places that these species can thrive in and so hearing simon say that at the end it was literally like his last sentence about how important that is i just think that's just beyond important all right, so that'll wrap it up. But seriously, check out um, that episode of the Mediator Podcast 61. Um, and, you know, do some research into it, man. Like, you should, if you enjoy if you enjoy going outside and you enjoy doing whatever sort of outdoor endeavor you like, whether it's Simon, who seems seemingly enjoys every outdoor sport you possibly can, <laughs> or you just like hiking, or you just like camping, you know, or you just like the fact that there are these cool animals out there. I mean, you need to inform yourself about public lands and really 
just how grateful we should be in North America for all, all of these spaces that we have. All right, so once again, huge thanks to Simon. Uh, check out all of his stuff, Adventure Science, Boundless, the TV show. Excellent, excellent, excellent. His book, The Boundless Life. Um, and eat some stoked oats. They're delicious. <laughs> uh, as for, you know, pimping all the Like a Bigfoot stuff, just go on iTunes, uh, subscribe, leave us a review that helps greatly. Right now we have a whopping total of two reviews, <laughs> which are great. They're great reviews. So thank you to those two, two listeners that do that. That's awesome. <laughs> but, but more would help. It just exposes us to more people. And, you know, the goal of this podcast is to spread goodness. And part of that is spreading the message and spreading uh, the amount of people that are, are listening to this thing. So, and if you're listening, thank you. You guys rock. You're the best. Uh, I hope you guys are learning as much as I'm learning because that's really the goal here. Uh, next week, we will be chatting with Jason Suddeth, who really has been in the last two or three months, has really just kind of like made a complete shift in his life towards health. Uh, he's dropped 40 pounds in two months, um, started running, trail running, doing yoga. Um, and we're going to talk about his first like really big wilderness adventure, uh, in kind of a hidden gym in the Southeast, uh, the Linville Gorge. So that'll be up next week. Hope you check it out. As for me, I'm Chris Ward. This has been like a Bigfoot podcast and we'll get back at you next week.